Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Footsteps of the Messiah, and I believe we are on page 183 of your book, in your notes. 183, and we're looking at some general descriptions of the uh, tribulation period. And we're going to look at Joel right now, and how it, it will affect the crops of the earth. And we'll look at a few other things, how it affects Edom, and a few other things. So let's let's pick up where we left off. Joel cha- uh, chapter 1, 15 through 20 stresses how the tribulation will affect the planet's vegetation and crops and food production, okay? Alas for the day, for the day of Yahweh is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds rot under the clods, or the, the clods or the shovels. Uh, the garners are laid desolate. The granaries is the idea. Granaries have nothing in them. The barns are broken down, for the grain is withered. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed, because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of the sheep are made desolate. O Yahweh, to you do I cry, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned all the trees of the field. Yea, the beasts of the field pant unto you. For the water brooks are dried up, the fires devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So basically what the tribulation is saying, or, or, or Joel is saying about tribulation, there's no more food supply. There's no more crops available. All the food has ran out. The granaries are gone. There's nothing to eat. People are starving to death. Now we see this very early on with the four horsemen that come through very early in the tribulation. And uh, because of famines that start hitting the earth, it has a dragging effect. So a lot of the judgments that start, they start at a particular time in the tribulation and then they drag all the way through to the end. So this is a, a, an important point to understand about judgments. It just doesn't stay isolated in its category. So by the time you're at the end of the tribulation, all the judgments are in effect. Every one of them. And so it's just massive chaos, massive, massive desolation with the crops. So, I find it interesting that there's Christians that believe in kind of a post-tribulational rapture that they're going to go through the tribulation and what they're doing is stockpiling food to go through the tribulation. They actually think they're going to go through the tribulation. And what if you read this, he's saying, there's nothing in the granaries. Whatever you store, I'm going to destroy. There is no food supply. Now, here's another question. If this has a dragging effect, it will mean that it starts and gets worse and worse and worse as time goes on through the tribulation. If there's no food, then how is Israel going to survive for three and a half years in a desert climate in Edom? You will see in other passages I will show you later that God provides to them and it would be like going back into the Exodus. So whether it's the return of manna, it says God will provide the provisions for them for food and water. Somehow in Edom, which is an extremely 
dead climate. There's nothing growing there. You can look at pictures of Basra online. It is dead. There's nothing there, no water. Somehow water will come there and God will provide it for the Jews. And if he returns to manna, he could return it to manna if he wants to. And he will provide for Israel's food supply and water supply for the last three and a half years so that they remain alive. I find that amazing that we're going to return back to how he did it with Moses in the desert. Pretty cool. And somehow he provides too for Gentile believers as well because Gentile believers survive. And so how somehow they get their hands on food, whether God provides supernaturally or through providence, I don't know, but they survive and he gets the food to them. So uh, I find that comforting to know that God will always take care of his people. Always. He doesn't hang them out to dry. It's the rest of the world that's having to deal with this. Okay, then we go to the uh, other passage in Ezekiel 30. No, wait, where am I at? No, Obadiah 10 through 12. Sorry, I, I was on the wrong page. Um, we go to the other description of the tribulation, and it involves the land of Edom. I find this very interesting. Present-day southern Jordan. This, my friends, is the modern-day Palestinians. Okay? For the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. You see that word forever? It means no descendants after you. In that day you stood on the other side. In that, in that day the strangers carried away his substance, and the foreigners entered his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem. Even you were as one of them. But look not to you on the day of your brother in the day of his disaster, and rejoice not over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shall neither speak proudly in the day of distress. Enter not into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, look not you on their affliction in the day of their calamity, neither uh, lay ye hands on their substance in the day of their calamity, and stand stand you not in the crossway to cut off those of his that, that escape, and deliver not up those of his that remain in the day of distress. For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations, as you have done, it shall be done unto you. Your dealing shall return upon your own head, for as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and swallow down, and shall be as though they had not been. But in the mount, in Mount Zion there shall be those that escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall burn among them and devour them. And there shall be shall not be any remaining to the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken that. Now let's explain this a little bit. He is basically saying those descendants of Esau will be cut off forever. They're not coming to faith in the Messiah. He's given them a chance, and one of the evidences of them not coming to faith in the Messiah is how they treat Israel, their brother. They're their close of kin, their relative. And, and because of this, this destruction that comes on them is not only from the hand of God, but it's also from the hand of Israel. This primarily deals 
with the tribulation period, but it could deal a little bit with Psalm 83. Okay? But as you can see, they allow a calamity, Jacob's basically distressed to, to let it go and they don't help when the situation occurs. This could only be one situation. This is where I think primarily the text is, is leading us. The distress and the calamity of Jacob has primarily to do with the attack of the Antichrist on Israel after the abomination of desolation, when they have to flee into the wilderness and get into this area. Well, this area, you know, is where the Palestinians are, uh, and then obviously you have the Gaza Strip on the other side, but the West Bank is what we're talking about in that area. Whatever happens that goes down when the Jews start running, Esau stands idly by not to protect them. And God is basically saying, because you didn't protect my people, I'm going to pound you. I'm going to pound you into the ground, and you will not exist any longer after this. Because the evidence of you not helping your brother Israel is evidence you're not saved. Hence, let me take you to the sheep and goat judgment. The descendants of Esau, if they were alive, because they're going to be wiped out before the second coming, at the sheep and goat judgment, the evidence of salvation at the sheep and goat judgment is what? When you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. He's talking about the Jewish remnant. And with Esau... They saw the Jewish remnant fleeing from the Antichrist as he's massacring two-thirds of Israel and slicing and dicing them, and they stood idly by and watched the whole thing happen, and they did nothing about it. It's called the sin of omission. And they, because they actively just watched this happen and didn't help Israel, they will be cut off completely. Well, there, uh, there's no doubt there's an element of that. Yeah, there's an element of Christians who are completely ignorant or they're willfully ignorant or they have some weird theological system, but there's no doubt, Dave, when you get into the church, the church is made up of, of false believers and true believers. That's how Jesus said it would be. So I think absolutely false believers, the, the, the defining mark of them is, what is your stance on Israel? Well, you, I could pretty much say uh, most, like if you, you take a Jim Wallace or you take some of these really apostate, like a Brian McLaren and Dan Kimball and these emergent church leaders and these, you know, sojourners is, uh, who's the sojourners guy? Um, Jim Wallace, huh? He's Jim Wallace. Those guys are so uber left. They're not even on the chart for Christianity, but they call themselves Christian and they're, all of them are pro-Palestinian. All of them. And that, isn't it funny that the, the emergent church, the apostate church, sides against Israel every time? Every time. I find that amazing. So you're absolutely right. That's part of it. And, 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 and even if you stand on neutral ground, there is no neutral ground with Israel. Because the Abrahamic covenant doesn't give you a neutral ground. I bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Jew, Gentile, whoever is doing it, there is no, well, you can stand on the sidelines and pretend like nothing's happening. There's no position like that. You're either for or you're against Israel. And the evidence in the tribulation 
The primary evidence that someone is a believer is how they treat the Jews. And these people watch the Jews and do nothing to help them. Watch the Antichrist slaughter them. And he slaughters two-thirds of them. Millions. It's a bloodbath. And they sit by watching this whole thing. And so God says, I'm pounding you for that. And basically the pounding, this is, this is important. You will no longer exist ever as a people group. Ever again. There is no one that survives the tribulation from this people group. So if you want to know who this is, you look at Hamas, you look at Fatah in those areas, and that's who we're talking about. The ones who put rockets in the schools and in the hospitals and fire them right in the children's playground so that when Israel retaliates, they kill children so they can put that all over the news. Israel's killing our children. No, you put the rockets in their schools. They're only firing on the rockets. And you are doing this on purpose, using kids and women as human shields. You creeps are going down. And God sees everything that you're doing with Israel right today. And there, that, he doesn't stand for it. But that is evil, folks. That is extremely evil. That when the Palestinians use cartoons, they have a Mickey Mouse, Mouse character called Farfor, and you can Google them and put them on YouTube, they're singing songs with the little four- and five-year-old preschoolers about stabbing Jews, how to stab them, how to kill them. I'm going to knock on heaven's door with the skull of a Jew. The little four-year-olds and the little Mickey Mouse guy is saying that he's going to be a martyr. And then they did an episode with Farfor that they had a, it's kind of a blood libel, that the Jews had got him and they were going to kill Farfor and all this other stuff and incited all these kids. So these kids grow up wanting to kill Jews. God said, I see that. And I'm going to pound you for that. Unless you come repentance and come to my son, that sin is the most wicked thing you could possibly do when you corrupt little kids and use it for him and shield. So this whole thing with Obadiah should bring you a sense of justice that God is not ignoring what's going on with the Palestinians and what they're doing with Israel. He's watching everything they're doing and he will come at them. Very, very scary to be in the sights of the living God. I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. Let's go to the next page. Zephaniah 1.14-18 portrays the day of Yahweh as darkness and distress, and we'll talk a little bit about this. The great day of Yahweh is near. It is near and hastens greatly, even the voice of the day of Yahweh. The mighty men cries there bitterly. bitterly. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of, here's the deal, darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high battlements. Talking about the Antichrist's battlements. And I will bring distress upon men that they will, shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against Yahweh. Their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of Yahweh's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by fire of his jealousy. And will make an end, yea, a terrible end of all of them that dwell in the land. Now, there's a lot of darkness associated with the tribulation. And this is talking about the general course of the tribulation, but let me get specific about it. What we see from other passages is there's five blackouts of the sun, moon, and stars of all natural light that occurs 
prior to the tribulation and all the way to the second coming. There's five blackouts. Along with the blackouts, there's obviously atmospheric things going on in, in, in the atmosphere due to certain things happening on the planet. For instance, there's a massive comet that hits the planet, perhaps knocks us out of orbit, but the dust particles perhaps from that cloud the sky generally and shade the sky, which destroys most of the crops on the earth because of this almost like a nuclear blast that more than we've ever seen, which would fill the atmosphere with clouds of dust. The other thing that happens is a supernatural darkness that happens all over the kingdom of the Antichrist is that God sends a darkness um, like he did in Egypt with the Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and that darkness permeates all through the world, and no one can see anything. The beast can't even say anything. The, you know, the Antichrist, he can't see anything. They're blinded by this darkness that happens. Then the last darkness, uh, and this is very interesting, the last darkness is associated to the return of Messiah. So, according to Zechariah and according to Matthew, this darkness happens, but Zechariah uses a word in the Hebrew, if I can recall, and what happens is the atmosphere congeals and almost goes back to primordial creation. It undoes itself. As Christ holds things together, he lets it undo. There's a congealing of the atmosphere, and it blocks out all natural light, and then amongst this darkness and this congealment of the atmosphere, the Shekinah shines through and breaks through. And then the clouds from the Shekinah come through as well. And it fills the whole earth with the clouds. And then the Shekinah brightness comes. And that is the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. Is the Shekinah glory. Now the Shekinah is Matthew 24 in reference to it. And then in Revelation 19, those two go together. But the, the sign the apostles asked, what is the sign of your return? He says, the, the Son of Man will come in great clouds and glory. That's the glory clouds of Yahweh, the Shekinah brightness. And that's that when people say, well, what is the sign of his return? It's the Shekinah glory. That's the sign of his return. So Matthew 24 and Revelation 16, sorry, Revelation 19. The other passage about the congealing of the atmosphere is Zechariah 14. So there's a lot of darkness. It's, it's a lot of the natural light is knocked out. Yes. Yeah, and some of that symbolic with the flame of wrath, but there actually is people that will be burned and scorched by the, the by the sun. Somehow, like I said, we get knocked off our orbit, perhaps by the, the meteorite that hits, and we get closer to the sun, and then you have a scorched earth, and people are scorched because we're closer to the sun or something like that. So the burning is literal in that sense. So there's judgments that do burn people, and some passages, the burning is referring to the wrath of God as a, as a, as a flame of fire. Now, the, the other passage we'll look at, and, and we'll, we'll, you probably know this pretty well, it's Second Peter 3. And he goes, uh, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall be dissolved. There's the congealment that Peter notes, okay, with fervent heat. And the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing that these things are thus all to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in the, in all holy living and godliness? Looking for and earnestly desiring the coming of the day of our, of God, 
by reason of which the heavens shall be on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Some people put this passage as like the end of the tribula, uh, sorry, the end of the millennium, but contextually and, and, and in accordance with other passages that we have looked at, it's primarily probably referring to the tribulation period as the burning time and all that happens because you match that with Zechariah 14 and a lot of the other passages and the tribulation is, is said to be a time of fire. Whereas Noah's flood was a time of water, tribulation is a time of fire. And basically, the earth has to almost be remade. It's not a new creation, but when Christ comes back, he almost has to remake it. The curse is reversed, and the waters that stem from his throne go out to heal the planet. The planet has to be healed again, because it's been so devastated. And you can see that in Ezekiel and, and other passages that talk about the Millennial River. The Millennial River it has a supernatural quality that everything it touches, it brings life to. It will be the water system that replenishes the earth again. Because there's no water anymore. It's all gone. If, 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 if there's any liquid, the liquids have been turned to blood. There is no more water. So when Christ comes back, this millennial river that comes from his throne, it starts from Jerusalem, goes out, hits the Mediterranean. Once it hits the Mediterranean, that means it's going to hit all the oceans of the world and kill them and supernaturally heal them and bring life back into the seas and life back into the, into the, uh, the vegetation of the planet. So it all stems from Christ himself remaking the earth uh, from that. We'll look at that when we study the millennial passages. Anyway, all this can say, all we say is that the seal, the trumpet, and the bowl judgments are discussed to bring fire or judgment upon the earth. Any more questions? Any questions about that? Okay. What I want to do then, I want to jump into Daniel. In page 188, I want you to turn there. And we're going to start in Daniel and we're going to start the tribulation. So we look at all the, the, the descriptions of it and all the things that will happen and, and why they happen. Now we're actually going to go chronologically through this. So on page 188, we're going to see the decree of the 77s in Daniel 9.24a and understand why the tribulation is seven years. He says this, Seventy weeks are decreed upon your people and upon the holy city. Now notice it says 70 weeks, but that's a bad translation. The trans, it's Shavuot, uh, which means sevens. Okay, Seventy sevens are decreed upon your people. What people? The church? Who's he talking about in that passage? That's the Jews. So the interesting thing is, this is Daniel's 70th week, but it's also Jacob's trouble. The church is nowhere mentioned. It is the Jews that are involved in this. It is decreed on their people, Daniel's people, your people. And upon your holy city. The holy city is Jerusalem, right? And so we're dealing with sevens. Now, why do we know it's sevens and we're talking about years? Well, because Daniel has been dealing with sevens, seven years. He's been dealing with years. It's not dealing with days or weeks. He's dealing with years. Okay, here's what's happened. Daniel has been doing calculations prior to this. And he's been reading Jeremiah. And what he has discovered is that he realizes 
that the 70-year exile is 70 years, according to the prophet Jeremiah. And Daniel has mistakenly thought that after the exile, the messianic kingdom will start. So, Daniel goes into understanding and seeing a vision of what, basically to correct him, of what the next epoch of time is going to hold for Israel, because God wants to correct Daniel on his thinking. No, the Messianic kingdom is not going to start, Daniel, when Israel's back in the land after the Babylonian exile. In fact, 70 weeks are decreed, 77s are decreed for your people. And so, actually, what Daniel is seeing is a correction of his thoughts. So, what that means is, there's a gap that's going to be in there, because it's going to go past that. In 483 weeks, he's going to see a gap. Or there's going to be a gap that we know of. And Daniel is going to basically say, oh, I see what you're saying, Lord. There are 490 prophetic years still left for Israel? Yes. Until I am done doing six things in Israel. Okay? So, let's turn to the next page, and we'll see the six things. Now, when I say 490 prophetic years, we're talking about 360-day year, lunar years. The Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. It's not a Gregorian calendar, which 365 and a fourth. The Jews have 360 days, and they always have to put in extra days to catch up a lot of times, but it's a lunar calendar. So, what is God then going to do during this 490 prophetic years? Well, there's six things, and you can see that right on page 189. Seventy weeks are decreed upon your people and upon your holy city. Number one, to finish transgression. That's number one. Number two, and to make an end of sins. Number three, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. That's three. And to bring an everlasting righteousness. That's four. The seal of vision and prophecy, that's five. And to anoint the most holy, there is your six. Notice the six things, and you can write this off to the side. The six things, there's three negative and three positive. The first three, God is removing. And the, the last three are positive, which God is adding to our world. Taking something out of the world and um, inserting three new positive things after I take these things out. The, the, the first item, finished transgression, is directly in poet, Hebrew poetry connected to number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number two, make an end of sin, is directly correlated to number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. And number three is directly correlated to number six. So one goes with four, two goes with five, three goes with six. I'm subtracting and I'm, and I'm adding. Subtracting, adding. And that's how the two go together like that. The subtracting and adding. Okay. Well, what's, let's explain then what it, all this means then. The first one is to finish transgression. In the Hebrew, I wish you could see this a little bit better. It, it is having, it has a definite article in front of it. It's the transgression of my people. The transgression of my people, 
will be restrained firmly or restrained completely. What, pray tell, is the transgression of the Jewish people? Rejection of Messiah. It is the transgression that they, the nation has to be forgiven for. It was that transgression that sent them to committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and that transgression that sent them into dispersion among the nations and that transgression that's bringing them back into the land so they can be <clears throat> purified by the tribulation. It is that transgression. Moses predicted it. Moses says, you're going to commit a transgression. It's going to kick you, get, get you kicked out of the land. And it's that transgression that Moses predicted that it's Daniel's dealing with, and he's saying, what's going to happen here? Uh, what are my people are going to do? Well, they're going to reject their own Messiah. Well, what does it mean then to finish the transgression? Well, I'm going to get it rid of it completely. Never again will my people ever reject their Messiah when I'm done with them. And that is the promise of Jeremiah 31. So if you ever want to read the New Covenant, and, and you understand the church is in the New Covenant, we partake of the, the, the spiritual blessings of the New Covenant. <coughs> we don't partake of the physical aspects of the New Covenant, and you're, you're fully aware of that. But let me read to you Jeremiah 31. Okay. In Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with who? The church? No, the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. We partake in that. We're, that's why Paul has to explain how we got engrafted into this, right, in, in Romans. I want you to listen to this. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers uh, in the day when I took them in the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's, a, that's the Mosaic covenant. My covenant which they broke, the Mosaic covenant, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, this, listen to this very carefully. This is an amazing promise which Daniel is predicting here. And this is what I want to connect the two for you. No more shall every man teach his neighbor Every man has his brother saying, know the Lord. So no more teaching about Jesus because they will all know Jesus. There will be no need of classes to teach you who Jesus is, who Messiah is. Why? They all shall know me. Every one of them. From the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now this is important. Once the remnant in the tribulation accepts Messiah, from that point on it initiates the new covenant into effect. Because of what you just heard read in the scriptures, at that point there will never ever be an unbelieving Jew for the whole millennial kingdom. Ever. Because the new covenant promises that. I will never have any Jew not believe in the Lord. In fact, we won't even have to have classes for them anymore. They will all know Him. They will all accept Him. 
Now, this is not a forced thing. This is not a Calvinistic thing. No, this is a providence. This is a foreknowledge of God and promising, I'm going to make sure that everyone there believes in me. Not forced. It's, again, a free will thing. Salvation is not changed. But he says, this is how it will be. I, because the point of the tribulation is to purge all rebellion out of Israel. To get rid of it. And he will finally do it. I'm done with it. No more will they rebel against me. And then the new covenant ensures that, that they will all come to faith in him. So, well, similar, I guess, in what, I mean, Paul still had a choice. I mean, his call to service was, uh, you know, on the Damascus Road too. But Paul even makes the statement, in the end, that all Israel will be saved. It means perpetually based on Jeremiah covenant. So, just basically when the child becomes the, at the age of accountability, they will naturally accept their Jewish Messiah. And it could be, I, I don't want to get too technical because I, I, you start jumping into philosophy, but it's possible that God, according to Acts 17, has reserved because of his foreknowledge or middle knowledge, the Jews that he knows will always accept him for that period of time. Because what is Acts 17? What's uh, the Apostle Paul's argument in Acts 17 to the people on Mars Hill? He has determined the times and the places in which people live. So why? So they might reach out for him and perhaps find him, though he's not far from any one of us. What he is saying is very profound in Acts 17. That God, because of his middle knowledge, what is middle knowledge? It means that God knows counterfactuals. It it means that God knows hypotheticals. That God knows that he can stick you and you and you in certain periods of time or in different locations on the planet. And he knows the thousands and thousands of variables of what it would do to your belief in him. And what he is saying is that God has given an advantage to every human being that has ever existed and placed them at a certain time and a certain place in history to give them the most advantageous opportunity to come to faith in him. God is completely fair. So the reason you live at this point in time in history and not in the Middle Ages, or you live in America and not in England today, is because it gave you the best advantage to know Messiah. Shame on anybody that turns against that because God's going to say, I put you at the right place in the right time and you still didn't come? What else can you want me to do? What do you want me to do? So I think, Dave, to, to this point, I think you have to bring in Paul's argumentation that God, because he knows counterfactuals, can reserve the people he wants to create who will all automatically come to faith in him for that period of time. Possibly. That's philosophical. But if you marry what Paul's saying... There's something to that. That these people, in putting into the millennial kingdom, are guaranteed they will come to faith in him, even without him bending their will. It's just because he knows how they're going to react to him. And, and that, again, that gets into God's middle knowledge, that gets into counterfactuals, and, and then you start getting into the Christian philosophy at that point in time. But it makes sense. Because uh, it, it's not Calvinistic. It can't be. Because that's not what's taught. The, the scriptures teach that whosoever shall come. So that still, they're still coming by their faith, but it's a, a guarantee that they all will. Well, I can only marry that with counterfactuals then. Any questions on that? One more purpose.
And then we'll, we'll leave the rest for next week, okay? Uh, to make an end of sins. To make an end of sins. And basically to seal up, to lock up, to securely keep. And the idea is this. And this is again related to Jeremiah. But it's also, Fruchtenbaum will note other passages. The same truth is taught. Isaiah 27, Ezekiel 36. And that talks about the new covenant, by the way. Ezekiel 37, Romans 11.27, all Israel will be saved. And it relates it to Jeremiah 31. It's not only that Israel will, that transgression of rejecting Messiah is done with, that in Israel, in the land of Israel, he has eradicated sin in the millennium. This will happen in the millennium. In the kingdom, no, there will be no sin in Israel. Now, outside of Israel, there is sin. And I can show you Zechariah chapter uh, 14, where Egypt commits sin against Messiah. But in Israel, there is no more sin. So basically, the 77th is not only is to finish that transgression, that one transgression, but to purge out all sin in Israel. Israel will be the golden city. No sin will ever occur there. So guess where the sin happens? In the Gentile countries. That's where we will be, by the way. And what does it talk about in Zechariah about Gentiles grabbing a Jew and saying, they grab his, his garments and say, you know the Lord, take me to him, teach me about him. So the Gentiles will gravitate to the Jews because all the Jews know him, there is no sin in Israel, and they will be the head of the nations, not the tail. The reason Israel could be the head of the nation now is because they don't reject Messiah and they have no sin in their country. Truly, they are the priestly nation now. They're actually doing what they were supposed to do. Amazing. They will finally be able to do that. And that's the purpose of what Daniel's saying. This is why Israel's going through 490 prophetic years. I, I hope that makes sense. And all of the promises, everything that Israel was promised comes to fruition finally. It finally happens. They do lead out in the nations. Now, the, the sins that the other nations commit, the Gentiles will commit them. One example of this is in Zechariah 14, Egypt refuses to come up to, during the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know what's going on with them. They're, they act crazy. They're, they don't send delegates. So guess what happens to them? They get punished. And those who, and you read Zechariah 14 on your own, but those who do not come to the Feast of Tabernacles, those Gentiles who do not send delegates up to worship Messiah once a year, they will be sent a famine of rain. They will not get any rain. And they, their crops will burn up, and, and you will learn the lesson. Because it's a rod of iron rule. You do what Messiah tells you to do. And uh, their disobedience costs them. They, get, uh, that, they, lost, they lose their crops that year. To make an end of sins... Yeah, it will happen in the tribulation. That's, that's one of the reasons for the tribulation is to purge out sin from Israel and the world. But the, the primary focus is to get rid of the rebellion in the, the nation of Israel. No more. It's gone. Yeah, it's dealing with this, this seven-year period, and, and we'll, we'll flush this out a little bit. There's 490 prophetic years, but 483 have already happened, and now we're in this gap and we're waiting for this last seven-year period to happen to give Israel its 490 years. So what happened is, once Messiah was cut off, and he, saw, he talks about this, we'll see it next week, 
we enter a gap. And it was not, it was not shown. It was a mystery. And Paul will talk about this being a mystery. That there was a gap between Messiah's death, 483 prophetic, prophetic years, and then the start of the the seventh week of Daniel, the last seven years. It was never predicted there was a gap. But we now understand why there needs to be a gap, because Messiah was rejected by its nation, his nation, and then he starts the church in, in this gap, and that's why the church is a mystery. That's why we're, what's, we're in what's called the mystery kingdom. It just wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. So there's eight mysteries in the New Testament that got revealed. Interesting thing that you say, because I was just getting ready to say this. The reason I'm saying, and I line up with Peter being part, when he says that the, 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 the world will be burned with fire, in the Messianic mind, I want you to think about this. What year, I, uh, I think Peter wrote in what, the 50s? First, first Peter? Don't quote me on that, I have to go check my notes. John had not written the book of Revelation until 95 AD. It had not been revealed to the church, or even the Jews, any passage about eternity. All the passages in the Old Testament and up to John, or sorry, the book of Revelation, all deal with the Messianic kingdom. Only Revelation 21 and 22 only deal with eternity. You will not find eternity, and this is why I'm saying 2 Peter 3 he has no concept of eternity because he's not been revealed eternity. He only knows the kingdom. So his reference in the third chapter of Second Peter has to refer to the tribulation. He knew nothing past it. So all the passages in Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of that, all are contained within the thousand-year reign of Christ. That's all what we're talking about. Don't go any further than that. And And so... Good point about that. So John's the only one that breaks that out. Only way, the only way we know anything about eternity is from John in his last two chapters in the book of Revelation. That's it. So when you see Isaiah 65 and it says, I saw a, sun, a new earth and a new heaven, it's not referring to the eternal earth and the eternal heaven. It's referring to the new earth and new heaven as Messiah recreates planet earth for the kingdom. And then if you follow Isaiah 65, he lays out what the kingdom looks like. And other passages as well. Any questions on that? I know I, I probably took you in a lot of directions and, and this and that, but to understand prophecy, it's like a piece of a puzzle. you got to put them all together. And, and eventually they all fit, and you're like, wow, it's absolutely a beautiful mosaic the way he's laid it out. Any questions on that? Okay, we'll, we'll talk about the other stuff next week and the purposes of it. Okay, let's take a break. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is The Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoy this message and would like to hear them, Please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store.
Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our redemption draws near. God bless.